Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 72, The Home Front, also known as Letters to Armosa. This episode is brought to you by Dennis Nardine, Martin Cordero, and Logan Brown. Thank you for your support, folks, and your appreciation of the show. This one is for you. The events of this episode take place in the reign of Thutmose III, with no specific date. If you need a chronological point, they take place roughly around 1470 BCE, give or take. In the mid-1800s, Egyptologists entered a tomb west of Luxor, ancient Thebes. In the gloom of the tomb, lit only by torches or oil lamps, the archaeologists found an object of great value, a mummy. The mummy itself was technically unremarkable, but the wrappings of the mummy were quite unusual. You see, whoever had wrapped this mummy had cut a couple of corners in their work. Instead of using linen as was proper, they had fixed a hole in the wrappings by covering the body with a couple of sheets of papyrus paper. The papyrus had been stuck together and then adhered to the body with a gum resin. As far as the embalmer was concerned, this was an adequate solution to the problem. But as you can imagine, the Egyptologists were excited. They carefully removed the papyrus from the body, cleaned the paper sheets, and began to study them. What emerged was a pair of letters, written to and from the same individual. Letters which shed a bit of light on daily business going on in Egypt during the 18th dynasty. Let's dig in. One morning, an Egyptian scribe was sitting under a tree, not far from the road. He was on the west bank of the Nile River, past the farmland, but not quite in the desert space. The air was warm that morning, but the hottest part of the day was yet to come. The day's work was now in full swing. The scribe sat cross-legged, balancing a wooden or wax tablet across his knees. He was using a reed pen to scratch at the tablet, making notes and recording the occasional item. Glancing up every now and again, he adjusted his notes, numbers and figures according to the scene before him. The scribe was sitting back from a group of men working laboriously on a small building site. Some of the men were preparing mud bricks out in the sun, hot work and tiring. They took mud from the Nile, mixed it with leftover straws of plants, usually barley stalks, and then moulding this mixture into the shape of bricks. They used wooden moulds to shape the bricks, which were then left in the sun for about 24 hours to dry. By careful, endless repetition, the brickmasters could prepare hundreds of bricks in a couple of days. All they needed was the material. The bricks were then taken by the builders over to the actual spot of construction. Here, according to a grid laid out by the surveyors and architects, they carefully laid the dried mud bricks into place. Walls rose slowly, layer by layer, with gaps marked out for doorways. Rooms were demarcated, storehouses set back from the main space, and occasionally the builders even dug a cellar into the rear of the property. Altogether, the work was intensive but careful. 
Egyptian builders were skilled workers in their own right. The builders and the scribe overseeing them were preparing the construction of a new townhouse. This would be an impressive building, up to two stories tall. It would have a portico at the front, with a pair of columns to hold the awning. It would have windows in the upper floor for light, and it would have a couple of small outbuildings for cooking and for storage. Around the property, there might be a low enclosure wall, designed more as a boundary marker than an obstacle. In some spots, the builders would mark places for trees to be planted. Over time, the townhouse would become an oasis of calm, far from the bustling centres of an ancient city. Soon, the sound of running footsteps disturbed the scribe in his work. He was disrupted by the arrival of a courier who came from the centre of town. The courier was hot and tired. He had come from across the river, from the government palaces in the centre of Thebes. In his hand, the courier clutched a small roll of papyrus, which he now handed to the scribe. The scribe took the letter, broke the mud seal that was attached to it, and began to read. The letter said, quote, The mayor, Montuhotep, greets the scribe, Armosa in life, prosperity, and health, and in the favour of Amun-Re, king of the gods, of Thoth, lord of sacred writings, and of Seshat, mistress of script. May they give you favour, love, and proficiency, wherever you may be. This is the standard opening formula for an Egyptian letter. The addresser would make invocations to the gods and wishes for the addressee's well-being. Polite and definitely formal, but appropriate in a society that was so concerned with status and one's relationship with other people. In other words, Montuhotep is making the polite overtures, which are necessary even between people of different social standing. Now, Montuhotep gets to the heart of the matter. Concerning this townhouse whose construction you are overseeing, when the wall has attained a height of six cubits, you shall have the beams of the storerooms installed, and the floor matting. Let the doors of the storerooms measure five cubits in height, Armosa made a note, and the doors of the living room shall measure six cubits in height, another note. Tell the builder, Amun Mose, that he should do it just so, and hasten the building of the house with great care. How good it is that my colleague should be with you. After all, two heads are better than one. End quote. Armosa, the scribe, nodded to the courier, told him to respond in the affirmative. Then, as the courier hurried away, Armosa took up a new piece of papyrus and composed a short order. Soon, Armosa would send this order off for fulfilment to help him in meeting Montuhotep's requests. Armosa and the builders were constructing the townhouse of Montuhotep, the mayor of Thebes. Naturally, being a wealthy and powerful man, Montuhotep had some ideas, demands, on how things should go. Meddling? Maybe. Or maybe he had a good reason to send these kind of instructions. Montuhotep's letter focuses particularly on the doors that are being built in the house. There was a good reason for this. The doorways of Egyptian houses, or at least the expensive ones, were built in stone or wood. These materials were stronger than mud brick, obviously, and they were also more aesthetically pleasing, a good display of wealth. So, the wealthy Egyptian favoured a doorway made of wood or stone, if they could get it. 
And that was the rub. Acquiring stone or wood was a costly endeavour, and not necessarily easy. In ancient Egypt, most of the stone quarries and the wood supplies were controlled by the royal household. Accessing them would not exactly be a walk in the park, even for someone like Montuhotep. There was bureaucracy to deal with, permissions to obtain, resources to acquire, and labour to organise. To get the stone or wood you needed for a doorway, you had to have someone in the know. And that is where Armosa came in. The scribe Armosa, throughout his career, had developed many ties to different government officers. One of these was a valuable connection to the officials in charge of public works. Armosa had apprenticed with an overseer of works early in his career. So, of all the scribes in Thebes, Armosa was pretty well placed to help fulfil Montuhotep's need for high quality building materials. Thanks to surviving historical records, we know that this man, Armosa, was connected professionally with at least two of the royal quarries in Upper Egypt. He corresponded with royal officials who worked at a place called Jebel el Silsila, a sandstone quarry, and also a place called Jebel el Hammam, also sandstone. With that in mind, we can guess that Armosa may have written to one of his colleagues at one of these quarries. He wrote to ask a small favour. Would they, pretty please, do the mayor of Thebes a solid and provide some sandstone for his house? On the down low, of course. The mayor and Armosa would be most grateful if they did. We don't have any information on the immediate aftermath of this letter, unfortunately. But thanks to these historical records of Armosa's professional connections, we can at least make a guess from the historical record. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Armosa probably sorted out the project to his master's satisfaction. At the very least, he did a good enough job that he continued working as a scribe in Thebes for many years. How do we know this? Well, the letter sent by Montuhotep is not the only letter we have from Armosa's correspondence. In a rare twist of fate and preservation, historians have a total of six letters surviving from just this one scribe. What's even better, we know that at least one of them was written by Armosa in his own handwriting. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
Within the larger corpus of Armosa letters, there is a second one concerning the construction of a house. This was from a different man, a man named Teti, who was apparently a colleague of Armosa, or maybe a family member. Quote, Teti greets his beloved brother or colleague and fond friend, the scribe Armosa. In life, prosperity and health, and in the favour of Amun-Re, king of the gods, of Thoth, and of Tar the great, may the gods give you favour, love, and proficiency in everyone's presence. How are you? Are you all right? It is very much my desire to look upon you now, to see you. Now, set your mind to completing the house which is on the river bank. Have it made properly, like every successful enterprise that you undertake. Just as soon as I arrive, have me come to enter the house. End quote. I guess Armosa was quite good at organising and building houses. Maybe he had a knack for organising people, or a good head for geometry and architectural planning. Either way, it seems that he earned esteem as a house builder, and was commissioned more than once for the job. Beyond the basics of building houses, the letters to Armosa illuminate many little aspects of how different middle-class men engaged with each other and arranged their lives. For example, Armosa organised and constructed this house for Teti. In return, Teti took care of some of Armosa's economic needs. Quote, now, I have sowed a great quantity of barley for you, and it has grown prosperously. It is in a corner of arable land along with the flax which belongs to you. I will not let you be lacking in anything with regard to any of my obligations, just as long as I live. End quote. It seems like Armosa and Teti, as colleagues or family members, connected their enterprises together in some way. Perhaps the barley and flax was Teti's payment to Armosa for the work of building the house. Or perhaps Armosa, working in Thebes, needed someone to manage part of his agricultural estate for him. Either one is possible, and unfortunately, we don't know anything about this man, Teti, so he could have been living or working anywhere in the Nile Valley. All we have is this letter, which hints at the little connections and relationships bubbling away beneath the surface of Egyptian society. Now of course, there might be a much simpler explanation. Teti calls Armosa his beloved brother, his sin. So maybe, duh, the two are actually brothers. Perhaps Teti lives on the family estate and manages the affairs there, while Armosa, the successful scribe, works in the capital. This could be a rare example of an internal family affair going on. Armosa is building Teti a house, Teti is taking care of the family income. That would be a very simple explanation, and Occam's razor usually favours the simplest. However, there is a catch. The term brother is sen. Senet for sister. This word is not always used literally. From the New Kingdom, we have plenty of evidence for people using the word brother to refer to brothers, uncles, brothers-in-law, cousins, nephews, or simply colleagues, even for friends, and sometimes for people that you might actually call rivals. Sen and senet get used to refer to lovers and for husband and wife relationships. So just because someone calls a person Sen, brother, or Senet, sister, it does not mean they are actually related. Without proper family information, the word is just a pain in the head to translate. So, Teti might be Armos' brother, or he might be his colleague. 
We don't know. What we do know is that their two lives were connected socially and economically. Basically, the two worked together to help each other achieve their ends. Teddy got a house. Armosa got richer. Good trade. Anyway, let's move on. There is a third letter in the corpus of documents sent to Armosa. Once again, someone is requesting his assistance. But this time, it's a little bit more complicated. The third letter of Armosa is a bit incomprehensible. Not because it's fragmented, but because it's one of those situations where the author assumed that Armosa was totally familiar with the situation that he was talking about. So, the author makes very few explanations, and keeps referring to people by pronouns like him or them, instead of their actual name. Basically, we have no idea what this person is really getting at. The basic gist of this letter is that there was a bit of a legal dispute going on between a man named Tahu and another man named Tetimos. The dispute centred on a maid, a servant, who technically belonged to a third party. Tahu was trying to get the maid back from Tetimos. But Tetimos was not responding to the summons. Tahu had hit a brick wall. So he wrote to Armosa. What follows is baffling. Quote, Tahu greets the scribe Armosa in life and prosperity and in the favour of Amun-Re. This is a letter to inform you about the case of the maidservant who belongs to the mayor Tetimos. The master of slaves, Abui, was sent to Tetimos to say, Come, you shall litigate with Tahu. But Tetimos refused to be legally answerable to many because of what the overseer of field workers, Ramosa, had said. Look, as for this maidservant, she is a maidservant who belongs to Minnie, the sailor, whereas he, someone, does not give heed to me so as to litigate with me in the court of magistrates. Tahu to the scribe Armosa. End quote. After some head-scratching, it seems that Tahu was appealing to Armosa to help resolve the situation. Apparently, Armosa had enough influence to maybe have an effect, and Tahu was counting on him to break this legal deadlock. Whoever this maidservant was, she seems to have belonged to Minnie. We do not know who Minnie is. Tahu was trying to get her back from Tetimos, who had her for some reason. But Tetimos was refusing to engage, refusing to give up the maidservant. His justification, it seems, was that Ramosa, the overseer of field workers, had said something. What? We don't know. The whole affair is a real head-scratcher. How did the maidservant wind up with Tetimos? Who was Minnie? Who was Ramosa? And what on earth did Ramosa say that somehow justified keeping the maidservant away? This situation is a conundrum, with no answer as of yet. Finally, we get two little glimpses at Armosa's personal life. We know that Armosa was part of the entourage of a more powerful or wealthy man, a man named Peniati. In two letters, including one sent by Armosa himself, the scribe is referred to as Armosa, Peniati's man. What this relationship exactly was is unclear, but chances are it was a kind of patronage. Armosa may have been an apprentice or performed scribal duties for Peniati whenever he needed them. He could also have acted as a counsellor of some kind. 
I'm thinking of the role that Robert Duval's character plays in The Godfather, the family's consigliere or counsellor, but that's just a guess. What is clear is that Armosa was a respected man in his local community. Others looked to him for guidance and trusted his skills to get jobs done. They also liked him, and as this short letter attests, quote, Hori greets his lord, Armosa, in life, prosperity, and health, and in the favour of Amun-Re, king of the gods, of Tar, south of his wall, of Thoth, lord of sacred writings, and of the gods and goddesses who are in Karnak. May they give you favour, love, and proficiency wherever you may be. How are you, Armosa? Are you well? Behold, I am well. Hori to the scribe Armosa, Peniati's man, his lord. End quote. Hori sent a quick letter to his lord Armosa, simply to inquire how he was doing. Which is nice, but it does make for a strange setup. Three lines of introductions, followed by a quick, how's it going? And then Hori is off. It's a quirk of Egyptian letter writing style that Hori spends more ink on the introduction, gods and goddesses, may they favour you, etc., than he does on the actual letter. Next time you're agonising over how to open an email, just remember, it could be worse. Now, as I mentioned, we are also lucky enough to have one letter surviving that was most likely written by Armosa himself. This was found in the same place as the letter from Teti, Armosa's possible colleague or brother, and it concerns a situation similar to the unholy legal mess of Tahu's letter. It's a short letter from Armosa to a royal treasurer, concerning, yet again, a maidservant. Quote, Addressed by Armosa Peniati's man to his lord, the chief treasurer, Tay. Why is it that the maidservant who was with me has been taken away and given to someone else? Am I not your servant, Tay, obeying your orders both night and day? Let payment for this maidservant be accepted, for her to be with me. Behold, she is only a child and unable to work. Or, let my lord command that I be made to bear her workload, just like any maidservant of my lord. I write this because the girl's mother writes to me, saying, It was you who allowed my daughter to be taken away, even though she was in your charge. It is only because she is like a daughter to you that I have not complained so far. This is what she says to me. End quote. I like the idea of Armosa opening that letter from the maidservant's mother and just thinking, Ah, oh, dang. By Egyptian standards, the mother's words are pretty strong. It was you who allowed my daughter to be taken away. Understandably, the woman must have been agitated. She had given the girl over to Armosa's employment on trust, and now this young maid had been spirited away by another official. Who knows where she was? Now, a lesser man would have passed on the mother's complaints and left it at that, hoping that the treasurer, Tay, would respond on the issue. But Armosa, it seems, was a bit more helpful. On top of offering to buy the girl back, he even offers himself in her place. This is a pretty big symbolic act for a scribe like Armosa to offer himself for menial attendance tasks would be a pretty big blow to his prestige. As scribes were vocally proud of their relatively sedentary lifestyle, Armosa was really offering a powerful symbol of his dedication here. Good on him. But of course, it's possible that this was merely meant as a gesture. Armosa doesn't just offer to buy the girl or work in her place. 
he also attacks the situation on the basis of his relationship to Tay himself. Because Tay, the treasurer, is described as Armos's lord, his superior, the scribe appeals directly to Tay's sense of obligation to his servant. He says, Am I not your servant, obeying orders both night and day? In other words, instead of appealing purely on moral grounds, Armosa doubled down to play on Tay's sense of obligation, his obligation to his servant, Armosa. It's a fascinating little play, and hints at the kind of power relationship going on between those who seemed to be in charge, and those who did work on their behalf. The letter to the treasurer Tay is the only one which comes from Armosa himself, all the other ones were addressed to him. Unfortunately, these few letters are all that survives of what must have been hundreds of letters written during his lifetime, but that's simply a fact of preservation. Now, what do we know about Armosa as a person, an individual? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's not a lot. We have a couple of small historical inscriptions at quarries, which suggest that Armosa had professional connections to those places. But we don't have a tomb, we don't have a mummy, and we don't have anything really secure about his family. That being said, Egyptologists have been able to put together a couple of little details based on references in Armosa's letters. So I give you them here. Armosa was a well-connected man. As I said earlier, he had connections to an overseer of works named Peniati. Now, Egyptologists think that Armosa's career might have begun under Peniati. It is possible that as a young scribe, fresh out of school, he was apprenticed to Peniati and given patronage of that high official. This would explain why so many letters refer to Armosa as Peniati's man. In a sense, this patronage and apprenticeship helped make Armosa the man he was. Unfortunately, we don't know too much about Armosa the individual outside of these letters. To the best of our current knowledge, no tomb of this individual survives. If it does, the name has been lost, and we don't know where Armosa was buried. We don't have his mummy, we don't have any references to him, we don't even know that much about his family, beyond the fact that Teti might be his brother. So unfortunately, this corpus of letters is the only surviving record of this individual. But still, it's a good record to have, and I think Armosa would not be too dissatisfied to know that his correspondence was still being discussed more than 3,000 years later. Letters from ancient Egypt are, quite simply, a wonderful resource. In a period where so much information is overshadowed by the royal narrative – campaigns, buildings, festivals, etc. – it is wonderful to get these small windows into what was happening behind the scenes. And there are other letters too, none of them are as detailed or extensive as the Armosa corpus, but they do provide more little glimpses at the worlds of ancient Egyptian life. Most letters that survive from this time are either instructions or requests from one official to a servant, or they are complaints about situations which the author needs the recipient to resolve. Take, for example, this letter, quote, 
Teat communicates to his lord Jehuti, life, prosperity, health, etc, etc. This is a letter to inform my lord of a matter regarding Ta-Sokar, in the sense that you interfered with him regarding the personnel of Heliopolis. Confer with the reporter, Gereg Mennefer, and then, both of you, send a letter about Ta-Sokar to the high priest of Heliopolis. Teat to his lord Jehuti. End quote. We don't know exactly what happened here, but it seems like there was some kind of dispute going on within the temple staff of Heliopolis. This was the temple of Artum Rei, Lord of Creation, located at Memphis, modern Cairo. It was one of the oldest temples in the land, and one of the most prestigious in Egyptian society. Despite this status, it was not above internal politics and disputes. Teat's letter suggests that there was a fair amount of squabbling among these venerable workmates. A quick note on the names in this letter, which I rather like. There's Teat, whose name means image or symbol, usually the image of a god like Teat Amun. There's Jehuti, whose name means Thoth. There's Tasoka, who is named after the god Tasoka. And then there is Gereg Mennefer, whose name means the foundation of Memphis. What a fabulous little set of names there. I mean, imagine calling your child Foundation of London, or Establishment of Philadelphia. It's a strange little name, but I love it. It's just so quirky in that uniquely Egyptian style. Anyways, there are other letters with more simple circumstances than the ones I've been talking about so far. Like this one. Quote, Amenemhat to Senu. Have the boat which belongs to Nebiri unloaded. End quote. Short and simple. Clearly, this man was not exactly verbose. Despite their simplicity, there are still plenty of frustrations to be had with Egyptian letters. This one I quite like, if only because it is kind of mundane, but still a bit mysterious. Quote, Address by Ken Amun to Hori Mose. The eight stonemasons have finished with these, something unnamed. Write to me about the other one that you desire, so that I might have it, or him, brought to you. Do this, and then send me payment for them. End quote. I like how this letter is kind of unremarkable, but still manages to be infuriatingly vague. Ken Amun writes to Hori Mose about the stonemasons who have completed something. What did they make? Can't you just give us a hint? Come on, Ken Amun, I am dying here. What were they making? The answer may lie in the grammar. Stonemasons obviously work in stone. Later on in the letter, Ken Amun makes reference to bringing it or him over to Hori Mose. What is he talking about? As is often the case, the answer may lie in the grammar. One of the noteworthy things the scribe does is refer to this block of stone or whatever it is as a him. The use of the masculine pronoun suggests that it's something that could be referred to in a personalized sense. The only thing made of stone that might fit this criteria would be a statue. It is hard to conceive of any other object in stone that would be referred to in this manner. Only statues have the personal nature, the concept of being alive, that might lead Ken Amun to refer to it as he. It is slim, 
but that might be the clue. Situations like this are why Egyptian letters are so fun. They're infuriating, but they're neat little puzzles, which, with the right hints, can be put together on the basis of just a few small pieces. Letters are a rare but wonderful resource from ancient Egypt. They give us a glimpse at interpersonal problems and the way society functioned outside of the royal palaces. Of course, a lot of this activity was still connected peripherally with government affairs, but a lot of it is simply disputes or communications between people taking care of their own business. The Egyptians had a thousand and one different ways to run their social affairs. Just like you and I today, there were many relationships to navigate, both personal and commercial, in the daily business of life. One of the factors to note here is that 99% of Egyptians were illiterate. They could not read or write to any great extent. This made scribes, like Armosa, incredibly valuable in their society. They became the letter writers of the general population. Most of the time, a letter on papyrus was not literally written by the person who signed it, but instead by a scribe taking the message down on their behalf. So, for example, Teti, writing to Armosa, may have had to go through another scribe to get his message down on paper. This raises the interesting question. How much editorialising went on in Egyptian letters? Today, we value privacy highly. Or at least we try to, anyway. That seems to be proving difficult lately. But in the world of ancient Egypt, your letter was not private. Odds are, you had a scribe at one end copying your message down for you, and quite possibly a scribe at the other end reading it to the intended recipient. So for every letter sent between people, there could be as many as four or more people aware of the contents. As we're going to see down the line, this could be dangerous in some situations. The world of papyrus letter writing is one of our few genuine glimpses at daily Egyptian life. Outside of the material remains that they left behind, letters give us a glimpse at the minds of some ordinary people living and working in the Nile Valley. They also hint at some of the Egyptians' habits and attitudes when it came to literature and what was important. You see, papyrus was not the most accessible material in Egypt. On top of taking a lot of effort to manufacture, it was also subject to shortages. When the papyrus plants were out of season, the production of paper would slow down. So papyrus went through periods of glut and periods of shortage. This made it a costly commodity. One way the ancients got around this hurdle was to reuse papyrus as much as they could. Sometimes, a scribe in need would take an old piece of papyrus and wet it to remove the ink, and then dry it again to be reused. By doing this, they could effectively recycle the papyrus several times. As long as it did not disintegrate, it was still workable. Or, if possible, they would simply flip the papyrus over to a blank side and start going from there. The result of this practice is that many papyrus rolls, which may contain amazing stories or pieces of literature, famous works, are also covered in personal letters, letters which are tacked on to the blank side. As papyrus could be stitched together to form longer rolls, this results in a wonderful patchwork of different texts and writings. All thanks to the little reed that could, the papyrus reed.
There will be many more letters to come on the podcast. By the fortunes of preservation, most of the letters which survive from ancient Egypt come from the period of the 19th dynasty onwards, approximately 1300 BCE and later. Only a handful survive from the 18th dynasty or earlier, and I've actually covered most of them today. But more letters are coming, and down the line, we will be getting a lot more information on relationships, situations, and events in the lives of your ordinary, average Egyptians. It's going to be excellent. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.